0: Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Adam Ragusia, and I am quite glad to be back, just for this hour at least, here on the station where I began my career in public radio in 2006. As you know, Profiles is the show where we interview creators of various stripes. And my guest for this hour is arguably more than any other single person, the creator of NPR itself. And yet, amazingly, you've probably never heard of him. His name is Bill Seemering, and he's kind of the Thomas Jefferson or James Madison of NPR. He literally wrote the founding document, the mission statement of NPR. It is a beautiful, unabashedly idealistic vision for what public radio could or should be. He also had the task of putting that vision into action. He managed the launch of NPR's first program, All Things Considered, in 1971. Now, not long after that, he left NPR under some rather unhappy circumstances. And I think it hasn't been until relatively recently that Bill Seamering's role as a founding father of NPR has been given its full recognition. Bill is a MacArthur Genius Grant winner. He is currently the president of Developing Radio Partners, an organization that helps foster independent community radio stations in developing countries. Earlier in his career, Bill also played a big role at NPR station WHYY in Philadelphia, where he helped create the show that became Fresh Air with Terry Gross. And it is from those studios at WHYY that Bill Seemering joins me now. Bill, welcome to Profiles on WFIU. Thank you, Adam. It's good to be with you. Why don't you just start by reading just a little bit of that NPR mission statement that you wrote all the way back in 1970, I believe.
1: I'd just like to frame this a little bit before I read it so you understand uh, why I wrote it as I did. <laughs> In the past, we had educational radio, and they didn't have a live interconnection of all the stations. And then with the Public Broadcasting Act, we, we changed our name from educational radio to public radio, public broadcasting. And so I want to differentiate it from commercial radio, from the educational radio that could be a little dull sometimes, and from public television, and to capitalize on the unique strengths of, of radio as a medium. And where it all fit into the media landscape. What was the unique niche for this new venture called National Public Radio? Yeah. So I wrote National Public Radio will serve the individual, it will promote personal growth, it will regard the individual differences with respect and joy rather than derision and hate, it will celebrate the human experience as infinitely varied rather than vacuous and banal. It will encourage a sense of active, constructive participation rather than apathetic helplessness. It should not substitute superficial blandness for genuine diversity of regions, values, and cultural and ethnic minorities which comprise American society. It will speak with many voices and many dialects. The editorial attitude would be that of inquiry, curiosity, concern for the quality of life, critical, problem-solving, and life-loving. Listeners should feel that the time spent with NPR was among their most rewarding in media contact. National Public Radio will not regard its audience as a market or in terms of its disposable income, but as curious, complex individuals who are looking for some understanding, meaning, and joy in the human experience. That's Bill Seamering reading
0: from the mission statement that he wrote for National Public Radio all the way back in 1970. Bill, it's, it's just beautiful prose. I have, I have compared the tone of that document with the constitution of some utopian <laughs> farming commune,
1: you know, it's so idealistic. Like, well, well, it was aspirational, you yeah. know, um, but it was also based on life experiences of the times. I mean, that's the other thing that I was considering in writing this was, as I said, the media landscape, but also what was going on in, in, our, in our society at the time, yeah. in, in our culture.
0: Well, let's go back to the, to the beginning. You're born in the 30s in,
1: in Wisconsin? Right. And how'd you get into yes. radio? So I got into radio, my first contact with radio in a meaningful way was going to a two-room country school outside of Madison, Wisconsin, and listening to the Wisconsin School of the Air twice a day. So the teachers would have a manual and prepare you for the class that might be science, social studies, nature studies, music, art, all those things were, were taught by radio, by so-called master teachers, if you will. Yeah. And so I learned from first grade on that radio was a source of information, education, entertainment, and imagination.
0: Were you thinking about radio as a career at that point?
1: <laughs> in first grade, no, I wasn't. <laughs> but I, I went to, to, a we moved into the city and I, I went to a, a good high school and was active in, in speech work and the stage crew and acting in plays and things like that. And as it happened, the, the speech teacher and my mentor at that time was married to the, the head of uh, WHA, the Wisconsin uh, Public Radio Network. Uh, his name was Harold McCarty.
0: Arguably the, the oldest radio station in the country, right?
1: That's right. That's right. So uh, when I graduated, she said, why don't you go down and see about working at the station? So I did. And I was going to work in doing scene designing for television or something. They said, well, we don't have that. At going now, much so, why don't you work in radio as an engineer? And that's where I started. What would
0: your folks do for a living? What did they want you to do?
1: My parents had been actors in the Chautauqua circuit. Huh. They put on plays in the Midwest, um, going town to town, uh, where there were very limited cultural resources. And um, one night they might have a lecture or a travelogue or something like that, and the last night would be the play. My father did a monologue in the afternoon. That was all before I was born, and my father was working at that time as a civil servant. Uh, he was uh, the Veterans Employment Representative for the state of Wisconsin. That is, he was getting jobs for veterans. He was a veteran of World War I himself.
0: So certainly performance is in your background, in your blood. You get into radio in Wisconsin. It eventually leads you to a radio job in Buffalo, New York, and that's the one that I think gets you to NPR. So, so tell us about your time in Buffalo.
1: Right. So I went to Buffalo for Madison, and um, the station WBFO was really a student club at that time. And they were off the air in the summers. They didn't go out into the air till 5 in the afternoon would go off the air for vacation. So it wasn't a proper serious, you know, station as we think of today. So we tried to upgrade that so it was a proper station. I did a porch-to-porch survey in the heart of the black community to find out what their interests were, because they were not served at all. I felt there were no people of color on television or in newspapers writing or in radio, except on the white-owned, uh, black-oriented music stations. And so out of that came eventually setting up a studio in the heart of the black community. And essentially all the programming from the weekend, uh, from Friday through Sunday, came from that facility, 27 hours a week. And this was really giving a voice to people that had not had a voice. and. We had a wonderful Black Hearts Festival one time with the people bringing in their paintings, their photographs, poetry. We had live jazz and things like that. So it was really a celebration, as well as talking about issues sure. of concern to them.
0: Well, what did they think about you, the white kid from Wisconsin?
1: <laughs> well, with some suspicion at first, uh, I had to kind of prove that I was <laughs> sincere, that I wasn't whitey that was there to try to rip them off or something.
0: So is it your work there, your really pioneering work there in Buffalo that got the attention of the people who were putting NPR together at the time?
1: Yes, and I had written an article for one of the publications, media publications, uh, educational media publications, about what does it mean going from educational to public radio? What are the ingredients that have to go into this new mix? So part of that, I've made quite a strong case there, Stronger than in this mission statement about the need for giving voice to, to minorities, um, or people of color, as we say now, because, you know, Martin Luther King had said that we have to write our essays on the street. I would go to a, a advocacy organization called Build, run by started by Saul Alinsky, and um, they would have a prepared statement about education and something some issue with the schools. And the television would film this and then they'd turn off their cameras and they'd say, well, you know, we can only we can only use 45 seconds of this. So you want to do that again? And I thought, you know, these problems have been in the works. The history of this is 300 years. It might take three minutes to explain this one issue. You know, mm-hmm. So that's really part of the, the thing that prompted me to to try to give give a voice to people.
0: So it's 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 the late 60s. You're, yes. you're you're working in Buffalo, you're in your early thirties, right yeah, in broadly speaking, in what social category would you place yourself?
1: Were you a hippie? <laughs> I wouldn't say i was I know I wasn't a hippie, I wasn't doing drugs or smoking uh smoking marijuana or anything. But I did wear a beard, I did have a beard, which gave me the impression maybe of being a hippie or identifying certainly with with um, cultural change, shall we say. Yeah.
0: So you fell in with the people who were putting the very nascent NPR together. How, how specifically did that happen? Did they call you? Did you call them?
1: NPR, in its formative stage, had to have an election of the board of directors. And they did this by dividing the country up regionally. And I was elected from that, from representing the Northeast, uh, to the initial board of directors. And I think because I had written these articles and so on about the future of public radio, they asked me to write the mission statement. And my work in Buffalo was was known also. Right. I used the station in Buffalo Reedy as a lab to experiment with a lot of different things. It was quite a creative place because they had a lot of creative writers there. They had creative associates in music. So there was a lot of cultural uh, excitement going on there, and I was reflecting that as well as the conflicts with the city or the issues going on in the city. So anyway, out of all that, I think they thought, well, maybe I could put something together for for, for a mission the, statement. Uh, mission statement. yeah. yeah.
0: You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Adam Argusia. My guest here is Bill Seemering, a founding father of National Public Radio. He wrote the mission statement for NPR uh, right around its founding in 1970. And then, Bill, you got hired
1: on. Right. I was hired to implement the goals. So as you were saying, they were kind of lofty. <laughs> And now you have to make it real, you know, which is the, the fun part and the challenge, you know. Talk is cheap. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but your job so, was
0: director of programming? Yes. The first program director for NPR, and this is 1970, right. And 1971,
1: right? Right. Yeah. I was hired in—I started work uh, in November of 1970, and All Things Considered started May 3rd, 1971,
0: what was NPR physically at that time?
1: Well, in the very beginning, we had no studio. <laughs> but then we, we, did, we did build a studio. And, but it really, wasn't, it really wasn't fully equipped and operational properly to do uh, mock-ups of the program until a month or less before we, we went on air.
0: But what did it feel like? Was it was it a dumpy one room kind of thing? I mean, were, you were in Washington. A, was it fancy? Yeah, I was
1: in an office building in, right in Farragut Square area in mm-hmm. Washington D.C. If people are familiar with that at all, not far from the White House.
0: Yeah, very fancy area now. Maybe a little bit dodgy back then.
1: Well, it was it was just a you know kind of a drab <laughs> office building, mm-hmm. and we had a few rooms on on a floor there.
0: And uh, c- compare yourself to your other colleagues at the time. Were you a little bit older at that point than the folks in the halls? No,
1: I was. I was younger than my colleagues uh, in the executive level, right? And may- maybe a little older than yeah than, than a lot of the people we hired. And you did a lot of the hiring
0: yourself. Who did you yes. hire?
1: Linda Wertheimer, Ira Flato, Susan Stamberg are some of those that are still. Still at, at at NPR. That's a pretty good batting um, average. Uh, Jonathan Bear, who's a, a wonderful associate producer, still there. So those are those are the people that people recognize as 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 names of people that I hired. Where'd you find them? That's a good question. I I don't know. <laughs> they kind of came in. They came in. <laughs> they heard it was going on, and and you know, I hired some people from Buffalo. Ira had been a student at Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Mike Waters, who was one of the first hosts of All Things Considered, co-hosting with, with Susan Stamberg, came from Buffalo and WBFO. And uh, Jeff Rosenberg had worked at the American Red Cross. Uh, our news director was Cleve Matthews, who was a newspaper person from initially from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and he'd worked, he was a Washington editor for the New York Times. And I hired Robert Conley who had worked at NBC television and, again, also at the New York Times. Because I really felt we we really needed to have a solid journalists. And at that time, uh, they weren't in public radio at that time, or even in commercial radio that much, I don't think. Because we needed strong editorial direction, and, you know, people that could evaluate stories, make sure that all the bases were covered, that it was, it was fair and and properly presented, and all that kind of thing.
0: And in fact, this was a point of contention with some of your colleagues in the executive ranks of, of the nascent NPR at that time. They, they sort of said right. to you, why don't you hire radio people who know radio?
1: And they said, uh, in one of the histories that's been written about NPR, they said that my colleagues on the executive level had disdained for me when they saw who I had been hiring <laughs> because I thought that anyone could learn radio... Uh, Because I had worked in the ghetto and with students. And it's true, uh, anyone can learn radio. Uh, The mechanics of it are quite simple. Uh, But what you can't teach is easily, certainly, is curiosity Mm -hmm. and empathy and being a good listener, which is a key to good interviewing, of course. So uh, some people I hired didn't have any radio experience. Uh, Very few that were, I think, only a couple that, were doing any on-air work. Everyone that did on-air work, I was very careful about how they sounded on air. Radio is a sound medium, and I pay a lot of attention to that. Um, when I'm hiring people, I will listen to their, their sample tape before I read their resume, because the listeners don't have the resume. I don't want to be influenced by a degree from Harvard or something. <laughs> it's how you sound on the air that's important, the, your air presence, you know, not every reporter makes a good host. Indeed, indeed. Uh,
0: let me uh, show what a great host I am now, and let's uh, do a little break here. Uh, we're talking to Bill Seemering. He, uh, he was the founding program director of National Public Radio. And he says I'm a great host, and I'm all self-conscious, and I got to do this, this copyright. But uh, So Bill was a uh, founding father of NPR, and that's why we're talking to him here on WFIU's Profiles. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about the launch of NPR's first program, All Things Considered, in a minute. This is Profiles on WFIU. I'm Adam Ragusea. Our guest for the hour is Bill Seemering, the inaugural program director for National Public Radio, one of the guys who was in the room when it happened, when NPR came together. And, Bill, you launched All Things Considered in 1971, as you mentioned before the break. You didn't have the studios to really create what we would call a pilot or a mock-up of the program that you could send out to the 90 stations around the country that had agreed to air the show to give them a sense of what they were going to get. So instead, you wrote them a memo, and it's another wonderful document, and I wonder if you couldn't read from this memo, this vision for what all things considered would be.
1: Yes, I wanted to give them some idea, because I think they were getting restless, wondering (laughs) what is this thing going to be like coming down the line. And one of the problems was, frankly, that this was the first time that NPR, that the public stations, were connected by a live interconnection. And so they had in mind, I think some of them had in mind, that it would sound like NBC or CBS. Yeah. It wasn't going to sound like that because why, why would we duplicate what's already on air? So it would have to have a different sound, more natural, uh, conversational style, using sound to help tell the stories, getting out of the studio, using music, and being inclusive not only of what's going on in Congress, which is really old, but really dealing with a culture that are, that's where the new comes from. I just wanted to kind of assure them that what we were doing um, <laughs> was there was a rationale behind it, and um, so I told them a little about about the staff and that we wanted to have diversity and of ideas and there were people that had a lot of good knowledge about the arts that may not have had broadcast experience, but that was okay, and to you know assure them that the editorial the journalism was going to be solid. Mm-hmm. And um, there were some core values I also talked about. I said that it would have uh, a unity of events, ideas, natural to the unique characteristics of the medium, growing out of the need to present a reality which is believable to all segments of the total population. People will be valued and treated with respect and positive regard and not as adversaries by the program staff. The listener will have a sense of reality of authentic people sharing the human experience with emotional openness. Each unit will be related to the whole with the form following function, division of time growing out of content rather than the arbitrary walls evenly spaced between the units. Not all that has come true, of course. <laughs> Indeed,
0: uh, all things considered for those uh, listeners who don't know, and Morning Edition do not proceed with an open format anymore. If you were to look at the uh, the program clock that we call it, the schedule on which every hour of the show proceeds, it, it really looks like a dartboard. Every minute is rigorously scheduled in a standardized format and you know it's something that is necessitated by the logistics of uniting a national network in Washington with hundreds of local public radio stations around the country that all have their own content that they need to interlace into what you're doing nationally, but you were starting there, bill from a very idealistic place, which is saying, let's simply let the content take the space and the time that it needs. Let's not impose right. anything
1: artificial on it. And that's a very right. lovely
0: idea, even if it couldn't come right.
1: true. <laughs> well, people are doing that now on podcasts. Mm-hmm. You know? Sure are. So there is a place for that <laughs> now. And I want to just emphasize a couple of things. Um, sure. Talking about people will be valued and treated with respect and not as adversaries by the program staff. And that was also within the staff itself. We wanted to be have that civility, positive regard, because if you start, and it's not meaning that you don't call a politician or a source when they're not answering a question yeah. or telling the truth, but that the basic assumption that you're respectful of that person, when you start attacking You just get a defense and you don't get to the real person because then you're not going to really go very far. If they feel they have to be defensive. Was that value a
0: notable contrast with the media of the time? I mean, I I, certainly media today, broadcast media can be extraordinarily contentious and poisonous and all kinds of yelling and shouting. But in 1970, I I mean, look, I was born in the 80s, so I maybe have a rather idealized impression. But my sense is that media broadcast media was more civil back then.
1: Well, there were I think Mike Wallace was on air then um, on radio and there were other <clears throat> talk programs that were pretty argumentative, yeah. you know. Protesters were sometimes called peaceniks or, you know, that kind of thing, stereotyping people. So that was what was behind that. Yeah. And that it should be, you know, authentic. It shouldn't sound artificial because I think that's something that people are hungering for now is a sense of authenticity. Yeah. There's a phoniness you know to I think you see, hear this more on television sometimes um, but it's kind of a playing almost a character sometimes and we also had a we did have one cutaway in the program I think it was around 53 minutes in or so where I wanted to to uh, lift the curtain and be transparent about what we're doing so Cleve Matthews the news director talked with the reporters and the news staff about the stories they were covering and what they were going to cover to talk about the process of putting the program together, if you will. Yeah. And I still believe that that's an important thing that people are very interested in. I think Serial, for example, the podcast that was so popular, part of that was because Sarah Koenig was taking you behind the scenes saying, This is what I found. Then I went here and discovered this. And so I, you know, the story turned this way. It's a process that's as important as a product sometimes.
0: Yeah. I like to say that authenticity is the new authority. Yes. Authority absolutely. is an artifice, but authenticity, you can gain people's trust by showing them how you have done what you have done, how you have come to your conclusions. And NPR, under your leadership, was a pioneer in that entire concept. We're speaking to Bill Seemering. He was a founder of NPR. He was the originator of All Things Considered. And the show went live in 1971 on 90 public radio stations around the country. It did extremely well. It certainly had its ups and downs, I imagine. But it won a Peabody in its second year. You must have been feeling pretty good. And then something rather unfathomable happened.
1: Uh, NPR fired you. How did it happen? Right. Well, I had a meeting with the boss, (laughs) the president, Don Quayle, who had hired me and march or so and he had some issues that he wanted me to address and i i addressed them i thought and what um, kind of issues i think it was more administrative kind of things and perhaps some stylistic things but what do you mean i um, mean
0: you've said that you were you were a guy with a beard were you were you (laughs) were you insufficiently formal for the the straight laced world of, of of broadcast news
1: yeah. I mean, some of my colleagues had said somebody should tell Bill this isn't the third world or something. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't that far out, but I did come from this university setting that was very progressive. Yeah. And um, they were, you know, some of working in New York and in corporate offices. And so there was that kind of clash, uh, perhaps, of, of the way of looking at the world. Yeah. You sure would have fit world. in
0: here in Bloomington, but... Uh Maybe not so much in Washington.
1: <laughs> I think it was some of those things, and i you know I'm certainly willing to admit that you know it was it was evidently not a good fit for me. I wasn't doing what they wanted, so one Sunday morning, Don called me into the office it was december tenth actually and and said, um, "I think it's time for you to leave and I said, "Well, I thought I addressed all the issues that you raised, and he said, "Yes, you have, but it's too late." So I was really quite crestfallen. By this. Yeah. I should have seen it coming, I guess. I should have been more sensitive to that or whatever. Anyway, so from there, I went out to Minnesota Public Radio, mm-hmm. almost like an exile. <laughs> to, uh, back to uh, the provinces. City. It was out Fargo, it was border town, Moorhead, Minnesota, and Fargo, North Dakota. It's, uh, yeah. it's probably very much like Siberia <laughs> in the winter. And um, started working there as a manager and producer reporter and had great fun mm-hmm. uh bill had Kling, who was president of of minnesota public radio said just go out and get the station qualified and put your feet up and think and um it was a wonderful invitation i didn't put my feet up but <laughs> we did create some new programs that were fun and one of the series we did with uh John Itzde, who is at NPR, you hear him doing uh, economic reporting. Sure. So he was a student, and as he graduated, he did the chapel. We had a chapel broadcast from Concordia College. <laughs> so I got a grant to do sound portraits of six small towns in North Dakota. We put together, I think there were 26 half-hours altogether. And um, I'd also set a goal for us to contribute to NPR, because part of the plan I had was that the stations would not only be used to distribute the program, but as a source of information so the country could hear itself. Yeah. And I thought if you could do it from Moorhead, Minnesota, you could do it from anywhere. And we did get 52 pieces on uh, NPR programs, not all th- on all things considered, but they also had a modular art service and so on and so forth. Yeah. So we met that goal. Certainly. And now Minnesota Public Radio
0: is one of the most important public radio stations in the country, right up there with the big city stations in places like New York and Los Angeles. And no doubt part of that is is your legacy. Now, Bill, it was at this time when you were out in the gulag in uh, <laughs> northern, <laughs> in, uh, in northern Minnesota that you actually kind of dipped your toe back into the world of, of national public radio. What happened?
1: Well, I did appreciate the opportunity to have the freedom that you have. And again, it was a little like Buffalo. I had a lot of freedom to do some, you know, experimental programming, if you, if you will, or to, to imagine different things. And so I really enjoyed that. I was working with Marsha Alvar, who was, again, it was her first real job in radio, she had been working in a unheated co-op garage in Minneapolis <laughs> i think she wanted to come in out of the cold yeah. marsha went on to become the uh, executive director of the public radio program directors right. this, you know so but she you know we created a program there called home for the weekend it was fun uh, i did a program called the arts around us and we were do, doing reporting on you know migrant workers and farming and things like that and i did I worked on farms sometimes on the weekends, and so on, anyway, I thought my career was pretty much over when I went out there. I didn't see where I was going from there really and i didn't i really didn't worry too much about the the future, but I did feel that somehow I had to kind of test where I fit in the in the system, and so I did run for being on the n p r board of directors. Again, and I wasn't on the kind of approved list, but you can be a petition candidate. A write in. <laughs> so I a, kind of like a write in. Yeah. So I did that, and I was elected to the board. So that kind of helped me recover, if you will, a little bit of my self esteem to, to at least have the acknowledgement of, of enough station managers that thought I could still contribute something to the system.
0: But then you step in and you're a member of the board. The board is is uh, is above the boss. You were right. you were the boss of the people who had fired you.
1: Well, the the man that hired me, Don Quayle, had left by that time. Sure. So, um, yeah, so I wasn't supervising him.
0: <laughs> well, that would have been fun. <laughs> so, what what was your role on the board at the time? Were you kind well, of a, I was kind of on, a gap fly? I,
1: no, I was I was on the board. Quite often, actually, in that I was elected to the board for a three year term, and then I think you could be maybe elected again, I'm not sure. Um, but then sometimes I was brought back to fill an unexpired term mm-hmm. and things like that. When there was a financial crisis, uh, when Frank Matkowitz was the president, I was asked to come back on the board. That's that in the 80s, right? Yeah. So I served a lot, I served, I think, off and on maybe a total of 10 years or something. I don't know, something like that. I was chairman of the program committee once. I was secretary once. One board chairman explicitly did not want me on the program committee because he thought I would favor them too much. (laughs) So (laughs) I was on the membership committee or something like that.
0: (laughs) And one of the things that people, listeners, might not understand about the way that public radio works You sort of might imagine that maybe NPR is the mothership and that all of the stations are its children, uh, but it's really quite the opposite. The stations actually have a controlling uh, majority representation on NPR's board. The NPR actually works for the stations, in effect. Yes. And that must have been an interesting dynamic to be a part of.
1: And that's one of the things that, that differentiates us from Uh, BBC, for example, Mm -hmm. or the large state public broadcasters in the world. And I think it's an excellent model really because it forces the local stations to, to excel. As I was saying, you've got to have programming that is distinctively different and also so meaningful that you'll voluntarily give money to it and that the network program has to be that good or the stations aren't going to pay the fees to pay for it. That's right. So it puts everyone, you know, everyone's kind of up for uh, evaluation, if you will.
0: Your next stop, uh, you eventually landed at WHYY in Philadelphia in a a top leadership position. And did you hire Terry Gross?
1: Terry was here when I came. She had been in Buffalo, but we hadn't worked together. When, When I came to Philadelphia... Terry Gross was doing Fresh Air as a three-hour live program. And often the person that was being interviewed would say, you know, that's one of the best interviews I've ever had. And I'd say, yeah, she's she's really good. So over time, we evolved into uh, creating a, 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 as a national program with different elements, of course, and tightening it up and getting a, getting a larger staff. And the idea was, at that time, there was some unrest about stations saying they wanted all things considered to start at four instead of five. We were starting it at five, which was early enough for reporters to foul stories, and some of the staff at NPR didn't weren't keen about moving a deadline up even earlier. Yeah. So I said, well, why don't we put, make Fresh Air as a national program? It's kind of like the art section or the magazine section of a newspaper where you deal with arts and interviews, yeah. book reviews, leading up to all things considered. So we designed it that way uh, with the longer interviews in the first half hour, the second half hour, the shorter interviews, so you could jump from one program to the other, if you will, without any, any feeling of, um, that there was a shift. In fact, we had built in a live two-way a conversation with a host of All Things Considered. So Terry, about, again, around 50 minutes into the program, would say, so, Robert Siegel, what do you have on All Things Considered tonight? And he'd give the rundown. So it sounded like it was seamless. It was like he was just in the, in the next studio that dropped by, even though he was in Washington and she was in Philadelphia. Anyway, so that worked quite well that way, and, and Fresh Air had a, an excellent audience. Then it was moved back when there was still more pressure and and nPR did move the start of all things considered to four o'clock eastern time This is the late seventies uh this is more early early eighties okay so it's the early eighties bill you've i came here I came to philadelphia in seventy
0: eight okay you you have been banished from nPR after helping <laughs> to give birth to it your your creation has fired you. And uh, you've put yourself back together again, and here you are in Philadelphia, and you launch Fresh Air, and it is arguably the most important national show on public radio stations that's not produced by National Public Radio in Washington. Was this sort of a personal victory for you? Was it almost a, a, was it almost a vengeance?
1: <laughs> no, no, I didn't carry that around with me. I did want to prove that I could still, I could run a radio station <laughs> <laughs> and be a good administrator and, and develop uh, a good program. I should say, you know, I mean, you were very generous in your introduction, Adam, and, and so on. But really, I think whatever talent I have is mainly just hiring good people, trying to see their gifts. And managing as I would like to be managed, which means being left alone (laughs) as much as possible (laughs) and, you know, have a clear job description, know what I'm supposed to do, be left alone to do it and bring as much as I can to it. But I wasn't creating something, you know, by myself. Sure, of course not. I always say, you know, I I created with the staff, all things considered, created with, you know, Terry Gross and Danny Miller, Fresh Air is a national program, you know. Mm -hmm. It's all a collaboration, you know. Certainly. We are
0: speaking to Bill Seemering. He was a, not the, but a founder of NPR and a big force in the development of public radio as we know it. And he's led a very interesting life since then. And we're going to talk more about that life and talk a little bit about how he hears NPR now when he turns it on and whether or not he thinks it lives up to those lofty ideals he set out in that mission statement in 1970. On the other side of this break, you're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Adam Ragusea. Back in a moment. This is Profiles on WFIU. I'm Adam Argusia. Our guest for this hour is Bill Seemering. He was the founding program director for National Public Radio all the way back from the early 70s and a pioneer in community radio, public radio throughout his career. And when we just finished talking, Bill, before the break, we were talking about your role at WHYY in Philadelphia in the late 70s, early 80s, getting Fresh Air with Terry Gross started. You then kind of had a wilderness period. You found yourself unemployed uh, in, in midlife. What happened?
1: I was, uh, <laughs> I was forced out of my job at, at WHYY. I had just started Fresh Air as a national program and and a local program called Radio Times, which is also very popular Mm -hmm. to kind of replace what uh, Fresh Air was doing locally. And I wanted to stay in the area. So um, I did take a job. There wasn't anything right in Philadelphia. So I took a job at WJHU, at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore to be the executive producer of a new documentary series called Soundprint. And so I did that for about five years and then um that job ended (laughs) and i was looking for work and not succeeding very well (laughs) so um i did get a gig to go over to south africa in 1993 to talk to folks that were interested in reforming the state broadcasting sabc prior the year prior to the election so there would be Fair coverage leading up to the election, and there were also a group of people that wanted to talk about community radio because it was part of the kind of the liberation struggle of giving a voice to the voiceless, sure, so I went over to do that and came back and I was really quite taken with South Africa and this opportunity there, and it was very familiar in a way um, with what I had done in Buffalo in a small way, giving a voice to the voiceless again so I um, wasn't getting any money for anything I was doing. So I, I signed up to, to be a driver from um, for a car service from the airport. You're kidding. And was waiting for, for my assignment. And I got a call from the MacArthur Foundation. Um, and they said that I had this fellowship. So I didn't need to, to drive the car service. <laughs> at that time.
0: The fellowship you're referring to is known commonly as the MacArthur genius grant, and it's one of the most prestigious things that anyone can
1: get. I must correct you in terms of factual. I mean, it's not genius. I'm not a genius. And (laughs) I think it was a slow news day. Um, Some copywriter had done that. The the foundation never calls it.
0: Oh, I know. I know. I know. It is commonly known (laughs) as the genius grant. And I'm going to call you a genius whether you want to be a genius or not. And this was a a big chunk of change that you could use however you saw fit. That's one of the things about these grants; they just give it to you. There's no strings attached like a normal grant.
1: But you chose to
0: invest it into the creation of this nonprofit.
1: So, well, this enabled me to work to work overseas and make the transition from U.S. to international work. And um, I worked then with the Soros Foundation or the Open Society Foundation in South Africa. They were just starting there, and I said, well, if if you're interested in, in community radio as one of your priorities, let me know. And they said, yeah, we are, actually. So I set up the guidelines for them and organized training programs and things like that with the foundation and worked in southern Africa. Then I, then I was hired as a consultant and then a full-time staff after my, my foundation grant ran out, working in Eastern Europe and even Mongolia to help uh, develop independent media. And then when that job ended, (laughs) um, I wasn't fired, but the job, the position ended, (laughs) I felt that in my work overseas, I realized how important, again, radio was and undervalued. And so I thought, we need to focus on radio as this wonderful medium of not only information, but of discussion. It's not only the vertical, bringing information to people, but it is the discussion where where idea or where, where people change their ideas or their they get information to change their behavior, things like that. And it's the dominant medium in Africa and sure. developing countries.
0: It's the most affordable medium there is.
1: <laughs> yes, it's the most accessible, both accessible to hear and to participate in. You don't even have to be literate. You know, if you have something to say and say it well, you can be on the radio. Yeah. Um and so it's, it's just another example of my love affair with radio. <laughs> and to see it being used, I have to go you know, halfway around the world where it's still the most important medium, in Mongolia or in southern Africa. So then I developed um, developing radio partners. I created developing radio partners in response to this need to capitalize on the unique strengths of radio as a tool for development. And you're still doing that today? Absolutely. Um, so we have projects now. we're focusing on, well, basically what our case is um, that we bring the most important information and in development to those hardest to reach using the most effective medium, and that's radio along with uh, SMS text messaging. Yeah. So with, we're focusing now, so we've done programming, we we enrich the programming of local radio stations by giving them first a a workshop on the science of the background of content, it might be women's health or it might be, we're working on now climate change. And then we send them weekly bulletins on these topics that are, uh, they can use in their own programming. We give them money for community activity. Uh, We send a mentor around to help improve their skills. And that's kind of the basic uh, template that we use. We're now working in in Zambia, Cape Verde, Rwanda, and Cameroon on, on basically on climate change. Yeah. And the case there is simply that while climate change is global, the solutions really are often local. And they begin with knowledge, which is best transferred by the most effective medium, radio. So it's a simple case. We're speaking to Bill Seemering
0: here on Profiles on WFIU, and Bill was a founder of NPR, played a very crucial role in its early development, and then went on to do all these other wonderful things. Bill, how old are you as we speak? You're in your early eighties?
1: Yeah, I'm only I'm only eighty-one. Slowing down at all? Not really. I mean I work out of my home, so I'm always at home and always at work, you know. <laughs> Uh, but I do plan to I do plan to um, you know have a succession plan, so within the next year, I will have a lesser role in in the organization is the plan
0: you had a a very happy day uh, a few months ago where the current editorial leadership of NPR in Washington invited you back, invited you back to this organization that you had helped create, this organization that cast you off rather (laughs) cruelly uh, soon after you helped create it. And they brought you back because they wanted to hear you talk about your original vision for NPR so that NPR could reconnect with its original vision. And you read from a little bit of that wonderful mission statement that you wrote, that beautiful idealistic vision for what public radio could be and it was a wonderful recognition, I think, of, of your role in our field. But as you look at NPR and public radio, public broadcasting writ large today, in the United States at least, do you think that it... It lives up to your original vision. Again, I'm gonna. It's, it was a while ago since we heard it. This is the first paragraph from that mission statement. National Public Radio will serve the individual. It will promote personal growth. It will regard the individual differences among men with respect and joy rather than derision and hate. And I'm choking up as I'm reading this because it's so beautiful. Has has it lived up to that expectation?
1: Oh yes. I mean, it's just a marvelous thing that that we have in this country, public radio and. As a whole, Reedy has, and as and with these new platforms, uh, there's, you know, it's it's, you know, a golden age, if you will, for independent producers sure. to get their work out and their voices heard, because as the world has become more complex, uh, the news has pretty much elbowed out those more reflective pieces uh, that we might have included in the early days of All Things Considered, and so from that point of view and you just stop and think of the the marvelous reporting that you hear on NPR sure it's it's just extraordinary It's really the best in broadcasts, um, and it's acknowledged that way.
0: And and one of your visions early on was that NPR would rely heavily on its local stations to get a local perspective on the news. And the sad reality was that back in the early days, in the 70s, the reporting capacity at the local stations was just very weak, and there weren't strong pieces for you to air when you were running All Things Considered in the beginning. Now, wonderful stations like WFIU, submit an enormous amount of incredibly high quality on-the-ground reporting from across the country that makes up a big percentage of Morning Edition and all things considered. And that really is something to be celebrated.
1: Yes, and I think that NPR developed this style. The, the people that I hired did this. <laughs> I didn't do it. But they, they developed the style of reporting that became kind of known as a public radio style. Yeah, the sound. You know, the sound to enrich the programming. My idea was that if you, you capitalize on the unique strengths of radio, which is a sound medium, a storytelling medium, you'll get a larger audience, you know. And if you have a diverse uh, voices on the air, you'll have a diverse audience listening to it. So what happened was I think that then the stations could hear Examples of really good broadcast journalism, and they could emulate that and say, "Yeah, we can do that locally."
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly how it is. I've been at many a station where we are editing a piece and we hit an impasse, and we think, "Well, how would NPR handle that?" It continues to Mm -hmm. set the standard, and then that standard is reflected back at NPR by the stations, and advanced in many ways by the stations. The stations. Have a little bit more freedom to advance the form and many crucial changes to the public radio sound have come from stations, most notably with This American Life at uh, WBEZ in Chicago. Something that completely changed the way that public radio sounds and shook it up and, and made it more of that conversational, intimate voice that you were hoping for back in the beginning in the 70s and i think maybe got away from npr a little bit it became very formal very top down relatively speaking until ira glass got a hold of the model
1: and shook it up a bit and he he did work at npr he did yes he... that's true
0: are there any disappointments for you mm-hmm. as you look at the the last 40 years of of npr any times where you feel like it hasn't risen to your your lofty vision for it
1: no it's it's so far exceeded what we envisioned really in in so many ways Sure, it'd be nice to have more sound portraits or whatever within All Things Considered or Morning Edition, but it's harder to do that with the pressure of the news, although there are wonderful examples of storytelling. Um, so there is there is a lot of that kind of storytelling, and I want to give credit where credit is due on that. So I, I don't have any, there's certainly no disappointment, it's only really gratitude for the way in which it works and I think everyone everyone should be grateful there is a public radio and national public radio in this country because it has this combination of different sources of revenue many public radio stations depend on over half their income from listeners and that's remarkable because you need programming that is significantly different and more meaningful in people's lives than any other source for them to voluntarily give you money in in Great Britain you're taxed for the BBC you don't have a choice here people have a choice and it is by that free will giving if you will of this gift that people uh, receive that is so wonderful and the the far reaching effect of of programming is 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 hard to measure it's impossible to measure just by numbers but for example I know uh, in Washington the few times I take a cab it's generally somebody from Africa Ethiopian often often and they're listening to public radio and always they, the yeah. cab drivers say public radio is our station and NPR had an appreciation for the taxi drivers once I had a, a, an immigrant from India say you have no idea how important public radio is to the immigrant community because that's where we learn about American life and uh, so it's not it's not an elite service you know it's just extraordinary how varied it is and uh, the storytelling is is just so fine D-
0: did you have any idea when you guys were in that office in 1970 that you were creating something that was going to be this big uh,
1: you couldn't you can't foresee that you know but i did have this little kernel of a notion that I didn't want it to be regarded as some alternative little side thing huh. that's why I wanted it to start at five I mean the network news started later I because I wanted it to be the very first broadcast record of the day's events and to reflect the culture of the time as well so it wasn't just hard news if you will um it was really the new as well as the news and we hear about that through the music through the you know the arts as is is the, is the the path by which we we find the new so i never wanted to concede anything to <laughs> to the other ones to uh, the other broadcasts because at that time the news hour on PBS came after the network news, the commercial network news, as if to say, well, you've heard the big guys with the, the Bain News, but now we'll give you the backstory, and put it all in a context so you can understand it. I didn't want to have that role. I wanted to be first.
0: Bill as you as you look to the future and we see that Media has been tremendously disrupted from the days that you first got into the business, Uh, print media most notably. But it's starting to happen to radio, too. Ratings to terrestrial radio, over-the-air radio have been sinking. Even public radio has seen its ratings diminish a little bit. Uh, Competition from primarily online, on-demand audio – audio is as popular as it's ever been – um, these developments, how do you see them affecting your lifelong goals for, for public broadcasting?
1: You mean the different platforms and so on?
0: Yeah. Do you think that these new platforms are going to make it easier to realize
1: that vision that you said in the mission statement long ago or, or harder? I think in the long run it'll be easier. It already is because there are, as you pointed out, with this American life is, if you will, celebrating the human experience. Yeah. Uh, with great emotional authenticity that I talked about. I think it's a wonderful opportunity. There's so much creativity with independent producers now. I think it's an opportunity for it to, to really blossom in new ways. Uh, I think there's always a place for broadcast, but I know many many people your age or younger are also s- listening to it on uh, streaming, you know, and not on the the time it's fed, but that's fine. You know, but they all are familiar with with fresh air. Fresh air is a program that is one of the highest um, uh, podcasts always
0: one of the top ten on iTunes. Yeah, always right. Yeah. so and that's you, you Bill.
1: That's you <laughs> it's terry and <laughs> and Danny and that wonderful staff.
0: They know. are wonderful, but I know for a fact that they give you a lot of credit.
1: <laughs> well, thank you.
0: so last question when bill seamering is uh, is at home and wants to listen to something, what does he listen to? I'm
1: listening to public radio. <laughs> favorite shows? Oh, I, I better not say that. because <laughs> It's like trying to single out a favorite child or something. <laughs> of course, I listen to Fresh Air, Morning Edition, All Things Considered, This American Life, uh, On the Media is a wonderful program. And tell me, I, I enjoyed Tell Me More and The Takeaway with John Hockenberry.
0: Bill Seemering, um, it has been such an honor. Thank you so much for talking to us.
1: It's my pleasure to talk to you, Adam. It's always fun. Thank you so much.
0: Bill joined us from the studios of WHYY in Philadelphia. Thanks to them. Thanks also to Georgia Public Broadcasting in Macon, Georgia, whose studios I am currently inhabiting. I am Adam Ragusea, journalist-in-residence at Mercer Mm -hmm. University Center for Collaborative Journalism and proud WFIU alum. Thanks so much for listening. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812 855 1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at the website wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Join us again for the next edition of Profiles.